This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. In all of the years that I've been employed, one of my all-time favorite jobs was working as a cashier in a supermarket. Because I am an exceedingly nosy person, this occupation gave me free reign to survey and take measure of all the items people found necessary to buy and take home into their lives. I found this endlessly fascinating and imagined whole life scenarios for the customers who came to my line. There was Bruce, the man who owned a furniture company called Furniture Now, who was married to a petite redhead named Cindy, and there was Priya, who was in love with a boy that didn't love her back and was now on a Ben and Jerry's diet. There were the Coca-Cola people, who I swear looked different from the Pepsi-Cola people. There were the lonely people buying single-serve frozen dinners, the busy people buying single-serve frozen dinners, the college students buying single-serve frozen dinners, and a lot of beer the women who bought only cat food, the folks who tried to buy cigarettes with food stamps, and the folks like me who worked there and bought whatever they wanted for 30% off and $3.75 an hour. I talked to nearly everyone who came to my register, which infuriated my boss. He couldn't understand why I needed to know everyone's name and what they did for a living and how many kids they had and the names of all their pets. But I did. To me, seeing what they were buying in the supermarket was akin to seeing them in the most intimate, vulnerable manner, and I wanted the experience to be less random and less anonymous. I needed to feel connected to them. Some of my customers appreciated my friendliness and answered whatever inane questions I asked them. In fact, Bruce, the owner of Furniture Now, became irritated with me when he answered my questions a second time, as I apparently had forgotten he'd answered my query of what he did for a living on his previous visit. As you can imagine, I wasn't the fastest checkout girl in the supermarket, which my 20-something boss took enormous joy in regularly reminding me. No talking, he would scold me. Talking takes time, and time is money. Aside from my not being as productive as the other cashiers, I couldn't understand how my boss would not want to know everything about the people shopping in his store. To me, being able to look into the souls of my customers was an enormous gift, and seeing their inner lives pass before me was an unprecedented opportunity to somehow peer into our collective humanity. To me, this was like magic. According to Thomas Hine, author of I Want That, How We Became Shoppers, shopping is deeply human. It may not be the most important expression of human freedom, but it's as close as most of us get in ordinary life. Shopping is the contemporary expression of our complex relationship to things. Objects are useful. They are repositories of magic. They carry meanings that are more powerful than words because they can embody the paradoxes of life. For most of human existence, only a few people have had the power to possess large numbers of objects, 
to create images for themselves and their families that the world would recognize. For the billions who live in today's world of abundant consumer goods, this is commonplace magic, but it is magic nevertheless, and few are willing to give up the power of choosing and owning desirable objects. It is the way in which contemporary people address perennial questions. What will we feed our families? How will they be clothed? What tools are needed to survive and prosper? How should we present ourselves to the world? How should we express our deepest beliefs? People giggle at shopping, perhaps because of the absurdity of humanity's fate, looking for a bargain in an indifferent universe. Shopping can seem ridiculous because what our spirits need is so vastly out of proportion to the goods we settle for. But scientists have long sought a grand unifying theory, one complete and utterly irrefutable explanation of the science of every event occurring in nature, one logical theory tying all others together, revealing the source of all behavior. Imagine how the business world could benefit from similar insight about marketing. According to Michael Boulware Moore in Bridging the Gaps, The Love of Marketing, this could explain the roots of our emotions and behaviors, detailing why we buy what we buy, why we prefer some products over others, and why and how we establish stronger connections to some brands and not others. Essentially, this would be the, the key to what makes people happy. Without this unifying theory, we must depend on each other for our connectedness and finding the elusive key. For me, that key involves talking about what we buy and trying somehow to understand why. I agree with Hein when he states making material choices is a privilege, a responsibility, and an essential activity of modern life. Shopping is about fantasy and necessity, generosity and greed, thrift and indulgence, identity and possibility. But it is also about freedom and responsibility and community. If we understand these choices, we ultimately can understand more about our humanity. Last week, I was late to dinner for an evening out with my girlfriends, and as I shivered in the cold February night, I debated back and forth whether I should take a cab the short distance I needed to go. As I pondered what to do, a cab driver turned the corner, and I quickly hailed it down. But before the driver allowed me in, he rolled down his window. I assumed he was going to ask me where I was going, and I quickly and confidently assured him I was only going about 20 blocks downtown. He shook his head with impatience and said that he didn't care where I was going. Instead, what he said to me was this, No talking. You can't talk on your cell phone when you're in this cab. I laughed at the irony of a cab driver telling me not to talk and got in the car. Once inside, I couldn't help but ask why he forbade cell chat. I don't want to listen to what people have to say, he responded. I don't want to listen. We sat for the rest of the trip in silence, and as we neared my destination, I saw another woman trying to hail a cab. She was laden with bags of groceries and was trying to balance drinking a cup of coffee. As we pulled up to the restaurant and I got ready to get out, my driver once again rolled down the window before letting in his new passenger. He looked her up and down, took in the bags and the coffee cup, and shook his head. Off duty, he told her, and she scowled and cursed as she walked away. I couldn't help but ask the driver why he wouldn't take her. Too much stuff, too much baggage. 
And in that instant, I felt both sorry that he wouldn't get a chance to peer into the choices of another human being and simply awed at his ability to make that choice at all. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Vice President and Creative Director of Target, Minda Gromlik. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about her. Minda Gromlik is the Vice President and Creative Director for Target, and she leads a team that has challenged the conventional image of a discount retailer and is responsible for the innovative advertising, branding, marketing, packaging, and in-store communications that have developed Target's image as a destination for great design every day for everyone. Before joining, joining Target, she was Creative Director of U.S. Communication, a marketing promotions company whose clients included Microsoft, Apple, and Kraft. And prior to that, she held the position of Executive Art Director for Dayton Hudson Department Stores, which is now Macy's. Minda currently serves on the Board of Directors at the Frederick R. Wiseman Art Museum, and she is a member of the Design Advisory Network for the Art Center College of Design. Welcome, Minda. Thank you, Debbie. So great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Oh, well, I wanted to ask you a question a little bit about your history, and I was wondering if you could share with us and our listeners what is your first memory of being creative? Well, way before I was in kindergarten, I all I did was draw, draw, draw. And my dad used to bring home thousand-sheet packs of mimeograph paper that were very, very thin. And um, my parents tell me that I would be sitting, you know, on the floor in a sea of white paper. Um, I used to make books out of the drawings that I made and tell, you know, sit you down and read you a story and turn the pages and tell you the story. And I guess my dad would always tell me that he would mix up the pages because he thought I was just making it up. But I would go, no, you know, that's not supposed to be there. I, um, you know, definitely had written a story and... Uh, at the kindergarten open house, when you are supposed to say what you want to be when you grow up, we uh-huh. to do a drawing, and some people, you know, said I want to be a fireman, and other people wanted to be a ballerina, and the teacher would write that underneath. Whatever picture I drew, what she wrote underneath was write and illustrate children's books. Wow. So that must be what I told her, but what I think is so interesting about it is actually I think that's really what I do today in my career. I use words and I use pictures to tell stories in a commercial and you. So I, I think that's pretty interesting. So wow, that's wonderful. I, lo- I love when sort of the universe makes things happen yeah. in the way that it does to get us to the place that we get, and we right. see all these right. clues along the way that right. led us to this point. Right. But how did you get to Target? I know that you worked in retail prior, but what, what got you to Target? Well, I ended up going to college in Minnesota. I went to McAllister College. I started out there in St. Paul. And after I'd taken every art class there, I think that took me three semesters, I was not really interested in continuing there. You know, I wanted to do something different. And uh, my professor there recommended I go to the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, which was in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Minneapolis was the bigger of the two cities with all the stores, et cetera. And after I got out of school, I was a, you know, BFA was my major and graphic design was what I focused on. I uh, ended up working at a department store that's not here anymore. And uh, across the street was Dayton's. And, you know, the network then was very small. Everybody knew everyone. And we heard that the person who was the executive art director at um, Dayton's had left. So I walked across the street and applied for the job and, then my boss there, John Pellegrin, who's very well-known in retail, very well-known, famous guy, was our head marketing person at Dayton's. He ended up going over to Target because Dayton's and 
started were owned by the same company. And uh, I was at another company then. He asked me to come over. It just... You know, it all just sort of happened, but um, that's how I ended up at Target because my former boss had moved over there and was still in touch with me. Now, Dayton Hudson was originally the corporate name yes. of the holding company that owned Dayton, then Hudson, and Target. Right, right, right. And the name was changed. The corporate name was changed, what, about five or six years ago? I think it was about seven years ago. Yeah. And that was to really reflect the the impact that Target was having in the marketplace? Right, and Target was really the main, growing larger and larger than the other parts. And so, you know, to investors and other people, we were Target. They really didn't, you know, necessarily know of us as DHC. Um, and so I think we felt it was better to change our name because, you know, as our brand, more people knew the Target brand. Right. Well, Minda, we have to take our first break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the Vice President and Creative Director of the Target Corporation, Ms. Minda Gromlich. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages. So please don't go away. Stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth. We cover it all. Voice America Business. Welcome to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe, where creative professionals speak out about their work and what inspires them. Luis Blanco and Michael Uman are the creative directors of Interspectacular, a concept studio known for its wacky print and broadcast work. Luis and Michael, the work you did for Comedy Central has a street art look to it. What inspired you to go in that direction? We wanted to go as far in the other direction from that kind of polished, glossy network look. And we thought, well, what if it's just like kind of black and white Xerox that's chopped out and kind of stuck on? The thing is, it's not so much that we wanted to make Comedy Central a street art network because that's not what it was meant. It was going to those sources and seeing what techniques and methods these artists were using to create imagery and using that as a source of inspiration. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Luis and Michael tell us more about where their inspiration comes from. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the city of New Orleans followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masada. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.17 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the Vice President and Creative Director of the Target Corporation, Minda Gralnick. If you'd like to join our conversation, our phone lines are now open, and you can call 1-866-472-5790. So, Minda, 
Um, now that I have you on the phone, I want to ask you, who came up with the name Tarjay? Oh, well, our guest did. What we find out, you know, is that lots of people call us Tarjay, and it's really nothing we started. People really? Told, yes, people told us that they called us Tarjay, and um, people all over the country call us Tarjay. So um, it's really kind of nice because I think it's an example of when your brand is taken into someone's life and their heart and they want to come up with a pet nickname that they think is theirs and theirs alone, that's a pretty personal relationship you have. And that's the reason we don't ever call ourselves Tarjay. We don't use that in ads because uh, we feel like our guests have made that up and that's their name for us. We sort of mm-hmm. think it's like when teenagers, when the parents start using the slang words that the kids use. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we're happy that people call us Target, and, and we're aware of it. So, what do you think it is that makes Target so special to people? Do you think it's just about the great design and the witty commercials? Or do you think that it goes beyond that? You know, it's hard for me to say because I am so deep into it. Um, but I think Target's a great store, and I think Target tries every day delight and surprise the people that come into our doors. And we really do. And we're always, you know, our tagline is expect more, pay less. Mm -hmm. And we're always trying to, what's the expect more? What's the expect more? We're always looking for new and surprising things to share. So I think that comes out. I think people see that. I think we're a fun place to go. It's clean. It's bright. I think our advertising, we do not talk down to people. That's just not who we are. And I think people see that and like it. Um, you can buy a lot of great stuff at Target, from the designer things to Post-it notes and, you know, Tootsie Rolls and all the things that make your life good. And I think another thing is that Target is a place for you from birth to death. I mean, you know, if you have a baby, if you're pregnant, you need tons of things from Target. You need tons of things for your baby. You need birthday gifts when they go to birthday parties. You need clothes. You need CDs. We have everything. You know, we need, you know, we have a pharmacy. If you're sick, we'll take care of you. So, you know, there's so many touch points in a person's life that they can come to Target and connect that it's just um, it's a really nice environment to work in. It's a fun place to be a designer. Why did um, the company embrace design so thoroughly? What was the original motivation for that? Was was it an internal love of design? Was it a sense that our culture was embracing design in a new way? Um, can you tell us a little yeah. bit about some yeah. of the origins of that positioning? Yeah, because it was very organic, like most of the things that we do, and I think that's why they are so kind of warm and making an uh, emotional connection is they really are organic. I think... United States, people were becoming more aware of design, but that isn't, we didn't say, hmm, this is a trend, we better get on it. We were already doing it. Um, Target, as you know, you said before, was started from the Dayton Hudson Department Store Company, and we sort of have a different outlook coming from a department store. We were always into trend. Way back when, we had a trend department that was shopping the world and looking at trends and seeing what was going on. I always said the difference between Target's um, dish towels and another discount store dish towels is ours had good designs on them. Ours had good colors. Ours would have the colors that were, you know, out there in the home design world so you could, you know, buy some dish towels that looked good in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. A lot of stores really didn't catch on to that until very recently. So it was always part of who we were. Um, we started working with different designers and Michael Graves. And then the actual campaign, Design for All, 
came up when I went to New York and visited the um, Humble Masterpieces show that was at the Museum of Modern Art. Yes. And um, that was just a little show from their larger collection that they've had going since the 30s where they collect well-designed items. So this um, show, I don't know how many items were in it, but it was rather small. And I went through it with a notepad, and I just got all excited because 90 things in it we sell at Target. Wow. From Post-it notes, yeah. compact discs, Band-Aids, Q-tips, paper clips, Maglite flashlights, Chupa Chup lollipops, M&Ms, Bayer aspirin. I mean, and I was like, wow, that's Target. You know, I'm in the Museum of Modern Art, but I could be in Target. And I think that's when... It clicked in my mind that we are curators of good design, and um, we want to be that. And I think doing that campaign was great. It also was great internally because it increased the design awareness of everyone that works at Target. We look at everything, I think, with the design eye. We've gone out of our way to help educate everybody that works here in that design is more than products. It's processes and experiences that have the ability to make people's lives better. And so... If you're working on computer systems or you're working on how to ship products from Asia to the United States, those are all design problems. And so we all are in this together. It's not just the marketing department, you know, playing with colors or, or you know, mm-hmm. putting glitter on a T-shirt. That's not design. And um, that's style, but it's not design. And uh, so it's really been great. We have speakers come into Target and, and talk about design, and they're open to everyone that works at the company, and it's been great. Now, you said that just doing something with glitter is not design. What do you consider design to be? How would you define design? Okay. Well, maybe I'm going to contradict myself because I always say that I think design is making something with intent, and I guess if you put glitter on a T-shirt with intent, um, it is your design. Um, But I think it's making something with intent. It is creating something for other people for a reason, to solve a problem, for function. And um, so I guess putting glitter on a T-shirt is a form of design, but I guess I was taking it, trying to take it to the level of more than decoration. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I totally understand what you mean. It's more than decoration. Now, in an interview that you did with CBS, you said that you believe that Americans have a new appreciation for good design. And when do you feel like this cultural shift really began to take shape? Well, for me, I think that when the iPod came out in many colors and the Volkswagen Beetle was redesigned, that was really different. I think it opened the eyes to a lot of people that, wow, I can choose, I can pick. Uh, The things around me don't have to be if I don't want them to be plain. Shape, you know, is a new thing. Shape is something that I can be interested in. So I kind of think it was in the late 90s that the sort of design awareness was heightened. Um, it maybe started way before that. But um, that for me is when the general public started to become aware of design. That's kind of when Starbucks took over too and people were starting to say, hmm, I want to spend more on a cup of coffee. It's worth it. Now, do you feel that Target has, was changing to reflect consumer uh, preferences, or do you think that it was something that you felt could change consumer behavior? I think, like I said before, that we're so organic that we've just been doing this all along. I mean, the whole thing about a retail store is being in touch with the people out there, with your guests, giving them what they want before they even know they want it, or responding to their needs and and creating things that they say they want. So it's hard to divide that up because we are so, it's so symbiotic of 
what people are telling us they want. You know, we read, we watch movies, we, you know, try to be up on consumer trends and changes in values. So obviously that was um, influencing us. But it wasn't a, you know, sit down at a table and decide that we should take this on and people will react to it. Yeah. We were organically doing it. And then when we, you know, when we get feedback that they like it, then we do more of it. Right. If we get feedback they don't like it, we'll do less of it or we'll turn in a different direction. Now, in terms of feedback, do you do a lot of market research or is that something that you do just from watching and, and observing consumers in the retail environment? Well, what we're so lucky about, and I think, you know, one of the things I find so exciting about retail is every day your store is a test market for you. You know, we know every day what people are buying and what they're not buying. So that is our greatest, you know, market research. And what do you what do you feel are the biggest challenges of working in a retail environment? I mean, clearly it's it's very different from uh, working in any other type of design oriented environment. Well, again, I've been doing this my whole life, so it's hard for me to compare. Mm-hmm. But I think what's challenging about it is what I think is exciting about it. Very very fast, incredibly fast. Everything affects everything else, so you're always working on multiple projects at one time, and you have to be ready to change at a moment's notice if you get some data or some feedback um, that's going to change your mind, which I love because that's how my mind works. But it's very fast, and you're also having to keep up. You can't just do one great campaign and and rest on that Mm -hmm. because there are people copying what you do. There are people changing their habits and new movies and writers and artists and TV shows coming out that you want to... Watch and see if you can get any clues. And you said before that you're always trying to increase the uh, opportunities to give people what they expect. How do you do that? How do you stay on top of trends? How do you stay on top of fundamentally understanding what people want and need? Well, we do have a department in Target that researches consumer trends. We also, you know, decide to study different trends and, and put you know, extra effort behind them. But in a lot of it's reading, traveling, going to art museums, mm. encouraging people to do that, having fun, talking to people. I mean, that's all really, yeah, I mean, that's all funny that you bring up having fun because I would say of, of all the mass market retailers, Target not only is the best designed and, and, and certainly you have, I think, the most genuinely good experience navigating through the stores, but also it's really a fun place to be. I mean, I, I enjoy it yeah. just being in that environment. It is. It is fun. And, you know, um, I'm a mom. My kids are on their way to being grown up now, but, you know, I have many memories of taking them to Target and they'd be saying, look at that, look at that, look at that, and they were excited and having fun being in there. I always say as a mom, when your kids are really little, it's sort of one of the quality time experiences you can have for them when they're, like, too little to crawl around. Um, You know, you can put them in that cart at Target and wheel them around and see what excites them. Now, there really isn't... is much sensory overload, what I consider to be, you know, a bombardment of flyers and signs and point of purchase and merchandising. It's a much more quiet environment, which I know you do very intentionally. Do you still have very sort of stringent um, guidelines about what you will and won't do in the store environment? Absolutely. absolutely. And when you say quiet, I don't necessarily think of the quiet, but I think it's respectful. Respectful. That's and a much better word. Easy yeah. um, to navigate. Yes, we do. And the other thing um, that comes out of that is 
Target is, you know, that's our brand. That environment, that experience is our brand. So we're very careful in the signs and things that we put up that they're speaking our voice. And I think a lot of stores don't do that. It's easy to lose track of that. It's hard. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Actually, I'll talk a lot more about that after our break. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the Vice President and Creative Director of the Target Corporation, Minda Gralnick. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Luis Blanco and Michael Uman of Interspectacular, the concept studio that designed the look for Comedy Central. Where do you guys get all your ideas? Uh, you know, I don't. I just. I think a lot of it is just I'm informed by pop culture. I've been a mass consumer of pop culture from watching schlocky horror films. I love subculture, comic books. I look at the bad science fiction movies, you know, cartoons. You know, you catch me most Saturday mornings. No kids, just me watching Saturday morning cartoons. We spend, like I'd say, a good part of the day just cracking jokes and entertaining ourselves. And we know that if we, you know, do a, tell a story that makes us crack up, we're sure that there's somebody else out there who's going to see some of the humor that, you know, we're trying to present. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. Coming up in the next break, Luis and Michael talk to us about working in a creative team. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. You know, when you talk about jazz, most people think of the blues. But Matisse, Bearden, Lawrence, Stuart Davis, and other 20th century masters inspired by this music saw a whole range of colors. For me, jazz is a visual medium. And maybe nobody proves that better than Nicholas Troxler, who spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. Now you can hear it from the man himself, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's acoustic, Masaba. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the most noble city of New Orleans, Saturday, March 10th at Jazz at Lincoln Center in the House of Swing. Go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime event and see how Troxler saturates his work with the rhythmic energy of pulsating swinging jazz music. Yes, indeed. The Bottom Line in Business Talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. You are listening to the live edition of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the Vice President and Creative Director of the Target Corporation, Minda Gralnick. If you have any questions for Minda, our phone lines are open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And Minda, actually, we do have a caller on the line. We have Mary from New Jersey. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Minda. Hi. How are you? Good. Um, I'm a huge Target fan. I keep a car in, in an urban area just so that I can go to Target. <laughs> um, I've got a question regarding the prescription bottle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, it was huge news uh, recently, and I was just wondering, 
when that idea came across your desk, okay. what were you thinking, and how did you push such a revolutionary idea through? Okay. okay. Um, oh, yeah, this is such a great, great story because I got a call from Ann Willoughby, who also is um, somebody that's been on Design Matters, who knew of a young designer who'd come up with a idea for her thesis at the School of Visual Arts, and she made all these little mock-ups, and they had target on them, and she said, Linda, you should see it. You should see it. So I go to New York fairly often, and this woman, Deborah Adler, was working for Milton Glaser. Of course, I'd heard of Milton Glaser, and I thought, hmm, a chance to go to his office. Yeah, I think I'd do that, <laughs> you know? And so all those things kind of came together, and I was in New York, and I met with Deborah, and Milton was there, and the minute I saw it, it was like, wow, why wouldn't anyone do this? It's such an obvious good idea, and basically it was good graphic design, you could read the label. And, you know, we all afterwards say, wow, we do put up with these bottles that you can't read them. The type's going all different directions. They're, the little stickers are the same color as the bottle. I mean, all these horrible things that no one had bothered to change. The prescription bottle hadn't changed in 50 years. So I think when I saw it, I knew it was great. What was really lucky, I was there with another person from Target who really works the numbers a lot more than I do, and he could look at it and go, hmm, I think maybe there's something in here we should do. Because obviously Deborah had just done this as a school project and had done all the thinking in the background, but you know, her mock-up was, as she says, it was made out of dollhouse parts. <laughs> and, you know, it needed a lot of work after that, but we just brought it back and put together some a business case to show that it would be worth investing in and making this thing a reality. And we worked on it together very, very fast. It did you test it with consumers at all first to see how they'd react to such a revolutionary change? Well, we did have some focus groups with people to make sure that they liked that it was upside down. Um, we had it in some different colors. So we did do a few focus groups. But we, we were committed to doing it. It's just, you know, we had many different versions of it that we wanted to um, decide, help us decide. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Bye-bye. So, Minda, has, has the prescription bottle been extraordinarily successful? Is it as successful as you were hoping it would be? Yes, yes. And what's been so exciting is people, it really matters to them. And, uh, you know, the Surgeon General has commended us on it. We've been in a lot of, um, gotten a lot of other honors and awards for it in the um, medical industry, which has been great. And um, It's also in the Cooper Hewitt yeah, uh, National yeah. Design Triennial this year, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yep, and it was in, I think, Time Magazine's... Uh, on best inventions of 2005, and it's it's won a lot of awards. And again, I think it's one of those things that you know the story is Deborah's grandparents. One was named Helen, and one was named Herman Adler, so their names were similar. Her grandmother took her grandfather's medicine by mistake, right, and got very very ill, and that's what made her decide to do this as her thesis project at SVA. And you know. That's really designed, solving a problem that people need. And, you know, to her, it was very, very close to home. So all that together made it such a great project to work on because it was tied to something real. It was tied to people. It took over 100 people at Target to work on it. I mean, from the computer systems to training the pharmacist to making the plastic, you know, all sorts of things that I don't necessarily come across in my work every day. So that was a good thing, too, um, learning that design isn't just someone sitting at a computer or a drawing board making a sketch. Mm -hmm. Design is many, many, many people, right brain and left brain, working together to solve a problem. And in this case, to save lives. Yeah. 
Um, do you have any intention of, of allowing any other pharmacies, whether they be private pharmacies, mom-and-pop pharmacies, to be able to use the bottles? My father is a pharmacist, yeah. so he's been particularly interested in, in that bottle. Yeah. Well, I think that um, there are plans to have other people use it in the future. Wonderful. So let's talk about some of the other designers that you've worked with. You've worked with some of the most exciting designers today, Isaac Mizrahi, Michael Graves. Can you tell us a little bit about how you go about deciding what designers to work with, how you uh, make the connections, and then and then how the process works to uh, offer the products that they provide? Yeah. Well, again, a lot of these things have just happened. In many cases, the designers come to us and say, I really want to get my products out to more people. I respect Target's um, view on design. I think Target will do a good job with my product. Let's talk. And that's um, how a lot of them have happened. Um, the Michael Graves one, which was the first one, happened when we were going to start having Target stores in the Washington, D.C. area. And we were looking for something we could do philanthropic in the area. And um, that's when they were starting to refurbish the Washington Monument. Mm-hmm. So we um, put Michael Graves together with the National Park Service to design scaffolding that would go around the monument while they were renovating it so that it would look good. And that's how we got to know him. And he said, wow, there were a lot of things in Target he would like to design. Mm-hmm. And um, the head merchandise person took him through the store, and he made a list of, I think, of 100 things that he would like to design, from the toilet brush to a chess set. And um, that's how we got started on that one. Now, I know that there's been an awful lot written about, um, for example, Philippe Stark selling a fly swatter for 11 or $12 when, you know, you can get one in a hardware store for $0.99. Cents. Right, right. Um, why spend that much more for a fly swatter or a cup of coffee or a toilet brush when you can get something that much less expensive somewhere else? Well, why do you think people are willing to do that? Yeah, I mean, the good thing is you have a choice. But what they're, why they're willing to do it is something that I think Virginia Postrel, who was a guest on your show too, talked about the aesthetic value of things. Um, a fly swatter will kill flies for 99 cents, or the Michael Gray's one, which, I mean, the Fleet Stark one that costs, I don't know, $15 or $20, it looks beautiful, and you can keep it out. You don't have to hang it on um, inside your uh, linen closet or cleaning closet. That's the aesthetic value that it looks good. Um, Starbucks cup of coffee, you like being in that environment. You like the choice. You like chatting with the baristas that are, um, you know, behind the counter. You like looking at the CDs that they're presenting to you that you um, need to be aware of. So that's the aesthetic value in that um, experience that you're willing to pay for. Now, when when brands, as we know it, were first created back in the mid to late 1800s, they were originally meant to be badges of consistency. You know, if you bought a, a pie at Aunt Mary's Pie Company on Main Street, you knew what it was going to taste like and what to expect. And then in the 20s, when the FDA got involved, brands were presented um, both a consistency and, and, and then safety. Brands were legally obligated to be safe and secure at that point. You know, now in 2007, brands are used to signal affiliations, the tribes, the Nike tribe, the Starbucks tribe, the Pepsi tribe, the iPod tribe, to define beliefs, red state, blue state, yellow bracelet, orange bracelet, so forth. Um, what do you think about the role of branding in our society now? Well, I think you've described it well, this, you know, wanting to be part of a group and also trying to, you know, express yourself. I mean, what is a brand? It's the outward expression of your inner soul. I mean, it's what the public perceives you to be. Um, and people 
more and more want to do that. Now, I don't know if it's because we're in our offices connected to our computers more and we want to connect with people. Mm, but yeah. I mean, when you look at um, MySpace and Facebook, I'm amazed how designed their pages are. I mean, my daughter who's 16, her friend's Facebook sites are graphic design masterpieces. Know. You know, they import photos. They do artwork. Um, they are showing who they are. And I think that's what we're doing when we align with different different brands. Just like you said, you could tell the Pepsi people from the Coke people in the checkout line. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's 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 really funny how how that you could always you could always tell. Yeah, and it's fun <laughs> and I think as a designer, you know, for me, I always wanted to kind of show what I thought visually. And so we get to do that for brands or, you know, products. You know, maybe it's not what I think, it's what this product thinks. But it's it's really fun, and I think people that are doing these um, blogs and MySpace and Facebook, um, they're discovering it too. Well, I think that in many ways they're trying to express their own souls, which yeah. also in, in maybe the best possible as well as the worst possible yeah. way yeah. could be considered, you know, your personal brand. Right. Absolutely. Um, so a lot of retailers are copying the strategy that you began, H&M with Karl Lagerfeld and Lazy Boy with Todd Oldham. Um, how does that make you feel? Do you feel uh, concerned about that? Do you, does it bother you? Do you? Does it make you feel more competitive? Well, I think if something's a good idea, other people are going to want to do it. So that just confirms that it's a good idea. But in our quest, because we're always changing and we're looking for what's new, we're not going to keep doing the same thing forever anyway. So it's, um, it's flattering and it just uh, spurs us on. Now, how did your relationship with Isaac Mizrahi start? He's, I'm a huge, huge fan of his work, I think, as you know. Yeah. Um, so I was just wondering some, some backstory there, Isaac, if you can share. Yeah, Isaac is such a talented person. And people that follow him, I mean, he's done things from, you know, his comic books to his you know, off-Broadway play to costumes. And his fashion line had um, gone defunct, you know. And he hadn't really been designing fashion except couture gowns for um, people that could afford to buy them. And he, again, really wanted to get his work out to women everywhere. And people that know Isaac know that he really does love every woman everywhere, and he wants to be their friend, and he wants to help them in their quest to uh, feel good. Mm-hmm. So um, he wanted to work with Target, and he wanted to do a line that would be accessible to every woman everywhere. And he created um, sort of a sample line and brought it to Target and just um, bowled us over. Great. Wow, so he approached you. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. Right. Wonderful to know. Now, do you feel that in in the way that you work, that you're more intuitive about what people will like, or do you feel that it's much more intellectual, or is it a combination of both? I think it's a combination of both. I think, personally, myself, it definitely starts with feeling. Um, I think I feel it first and then um, think about it afterward. Mm -hmm. But you definitely have to put both together. Now, with with Michael Graves, um, with with the look of his products, was that something that you felt was intuitively going to work? Did you do a substantial? Because he was really the first, mm-hmm. the first sort yes. of celebrity yes. designer being offered in a in a mass retail environment. Mm-hmm. Um, were you all were you at all nervous that the, that the public would not catch on? Well. I don't think we were nervous. Like I said, we are our best test market because, you know, if it doesn't work, we can change. You know, mm-hmm. we, it doesn't have to be forever. And uh, um, we thought he was a great talent. We knew of people, you know, his line that he sold through Alessi and through um, museum stores. I mean, there were people out there that liked that, that 
would rather pay for it at a you know lesser price. Right. So, where are you going next? Where do you see Target going? Say a year or two, five years. What 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 kind of plans do you have with design for the future? Well, I think design again is ever evolving, and we will be ever evolving, searching for that expect more thing that's out there. And I, I don't know yet. Okay. Well, we'll come back from the break, and I'll, I'll ask you a little bit more about the future and some design advice you might be able to give people. Uh, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the Vice President and Creative Director of the Target Corporation, Minda Gromick. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk radio, Voice America Business. Welcome back to Voices of Design. We're speaking with Luis Blanco and Michael Uman of Interspectacular. So tell us what it was like to work with a creative team to design Comedy Central's identity. It was very collaborative. I mean, essentially, we pooled together a design team, and we made sure that the designers understood that it wasn't about your work. It was about the group's work. People would scan that stuff in, and we'd kind of put it in a shared drive, and it became the group's assets. I think the big challenge was to make each other laugh because somebody would do something, take a logo and tweak it just a certain way, being subversive and being funny with it, and the group would kind of like, oh, that's a cool little thing that's funny. So then you would start to see it virally through the work, and then it would kind of evolve and, and morph. And, you know, we would kind of sit and direct it, and we would kind of add marks to it, too. You know what? It's really all about entertaining ourselves in the end. You've been listening to Voices of Design, brought to you by Adobe. For more information, visit adobe.com. This is Wynton Marcellus for AIGA New York. Nicholas Troxler has spent a lifetime turning the passion and soul of jazz into some of the most compelling poster design ever. AIGA New York proudly presents Look, Listen, Nicholas Troxler in New York City, a benefit for the city of New Orleans, followed by a concert by Cecil Taylor, the new AHA 3, and John Zorn's Acoustic Masada. We know y'all are going to enjoy it. And please go to AIGANewYork.org to register and get all the details. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.48 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is the lovely, wonderful Vice President and Creative Director of Target Corporation, Minda Grelnick. If you'd like to call us and speak, this is your last opportunity. The number is 1-866-472-5790. So, Minda, I have been wanting to ask you this for the entire show. In all your years of working with some of the most successful designers in the world, I imagine that you know a lot about best practices. And I was wondering if you could share with our listeners some of the things that designers need to know about working with big companies that are in the business of selling to the mass market. Well, I think that they have to, um, you know, we have designers that work internally at Target and we use many designers and design firms 
you know, outside of Target. And I think, you know, partnership is a really big thing that we're working together. So if you're working with a merchant or a brand manager inside Target, it's really a team effort. Mm-hmm. And when things work the best, it's, you know, you're just really, it's not them against us, it's we're together. And I'd say to consistently strive for that. And that's, you know, happens when you have open communication and respect. And again, I think at Target, that's why educating everyone about the power of the design thinking helps us all create better things because we're open to the ideas of the other side. And when I say the other side, I guess I mean right brain, left brain. Right. Some lucky people that are great at both, and they are gems. Right. Other people, you know, have a little stronger from one or the other. But you can work together, and, you know, if together you're one whole mind, you know, there's no limit to what you can do. So... I say partnership, being open, being empathetic, that's going to get you a long way. Now, what do you do when you are up against some resistance from the more business-oriented side of the organization that might not be as confident or secure about a design decision that you feel very comfortable and strong about? Well, I think, you know, you have to find ways to sell it, and sometimes that means getting numbers to back up what you want to do, mm-hmm. like with ClearRx, yes, to me it was obviously that it, obvious that it just looked better. I was sure that people would think it was an improvement, but that wasn't enough to get Target to spend money to research the bottle and make it and reprogram all their computers. You know, we had to um, get together with people on the business side to really see if there was a business case that made it worth the effort, and there was. So it was a good good project. And if there really hadn't been. It wouldn't have been a good project. Right. Um, so uh, I, I think, you know, you sometimes you have to be, edu- you do have to be educated on as much of the business aspects as you can be. Yeah, no, I do find that there are times when I speak to designers, particularly students, when they become exasperated where people aren't going to make a decision purely based on the aesthetic imperative. And while that's very compelling and often enough for us, it isn't always enough for our clients. You know, who I, I constantly am asking them, who are we in business for? Are we in business for ourselves or are we in business for our clients? Yes, and I would say um, that's a really good point because a lot of young designers, it's, it's a hard thing. And if you don't have it, Team up with someone that does. I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to know everything, but reach out, team up, be open to working with other people, and you'll just be stronger and smarter. Yes. Don't be afraid of that. <laughs> Fear gets in the way, absolutely. Um, Minda, we have another caller on the line. We have Melissa from New York. Melissa, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi. Thank you so much, Minda. I'm so excited to be talking to you. I'm great. My husband calls Target my happy place. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing. <laughs> and it's like, you know, for as reasonably priced as it's supposed to be, I never leave there spending less than $300. So I'd like you to Thank <laughs> you. explain how that happens. Um, I was curious. I, I'm sure you have all sorts of amazing designers clamoring to partner with you. And how do you decide that you're going to work with, um, you know, Michael Reyes or Isaac Mizrahi over other designers? How do you make that selection? Well, sometimes it is just right place, right time. Also, you know, the Target store, we only have so much space. So if we're going to add a new Isaac Mizrahi, you know, four racks of his clothes, four have to leave. So sometimes it's where there's a need. Um, We can't have, you know, three designers that all sell the exact same thing to the same kind of people because it just wouldn't be right. So it's a balancing act of a lot of different things. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Are there any designers um, that you have on your hot wish list? Oh, always. <laughs> you know, for me, I love working with creative people, whatever they do. If they're designers, if they're, you know, whatever, writers, whatever they do. So, you know, we're always, you know, we get a lot of stimulation and excitement by working with talented people if they are designers that design products or, you know, graphic designers. And um, so, of course, we're always wanting to meet more people, mm-hmm. work with them. Well, thank you so much. You guys are doing an amazing job. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for calling, Melissa. Perfect. And a minute before, I asked you about giving designers some advice about working with business people. And I would like to sort of reverse the question and ask you, for for the business people that listen to the show, um, what what advice would you give business managers, marketing managers, CEOs about working with creative people? Okay. Well, I think I'd first tell them that design matters. It does. <laughs> it matters to your bottom line. And I would um, show them some business cases of where that's happened if they don't know. I also think, um, you know, we need to create an environment where people feel free to express their opinions and design and have a little of that goofing off time. Mm-hmm. And um, so that has to be designed into the process so that you can work and share things that maybe aren't there yet, maybe don't exactly fit, but, you know, you need to use them to get to the next step. So I think you need to create an environment that's free and open. And and sometimes maybe that's not having the business people at that meeting until a certain point, or maybe it is bringing them in early so that you can um, get their viewpoint. But I think you need to have a nurturing environment where, you know, right brain and left brain thinking all works together. Yeah. What do you, what do you um, how, how do you inspire business people to take that leap of faith? Well, I think success helps. You know, I mm-hmm. think uh, things we've done that have worked, I think when we ran that first Design for All commercial and we got so much public uh, response and press and people, you know, giving us accolades for it, you know, they noticed that. Um, when we're in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times um, with something we've done, you know, it gets noticed. So I think that's helped. You know, the track record's helped. Um, and uh, so we've built trust. Well, I think that is certainly the most necessary ingredient to any kind of success, whether it be in the retail environment, whether it be in relationships, whether it be in communities. Well, Ms., I want to thank you so much. We've come to the end of the broadcast, but I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and and talking to us about your life and your experiences and and the wonderful work that you're doing. Thanks, Debbie. It's been fun. Oh, good. I'm glad. I'd also like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe. Big thanks as well to Brian Travis and Ruben Colomb at Voice America, and Ryan as well, who has been doing such a lovely job with all of the production, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling. Joining me next week is the wonderful, fabulous illustrator, designer, and educator, Andrea Dezo. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Thank you.